0: It's a tough environment. It's been a particularly tough environment, obviously, for the hobbyist community, which are really at the kind of at the heart of what we do at Raspberry Pi. Um, I think the good news is, if you look at what what we've tried to build at the foundation in terms of infrastructure, and it's to build the organizational infrastructure, the social infrastructure that you require in order to have a good experience with computing. So, you know, what what did the social infrastructure look like for me as a child? Teachers who'd give me, would respond to me hacking the school network by giving me an account on the uh, on my my own private account, rather than sending me to the headmaster and putting me in detention. Right? You know, people who would engage with well-intentioned, but some potentially disruptive enthusiasm in in, in a positive rather than a negative way. Hey
1: everyone, it's David Bombal back with a very, very special guest. Eben, welcome. Good to be here. I want to talk about the whole history, about like how this stuff came about, you know, from your ideas to reality. But before we get there, I think a, a pressing question a lot of people will have is, I can't buy it.
0: Yeah, um... We're in this very, very strange time. Uh, You know, we are still in the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, I guess an interesting thing happened about three years, well, obviously an interesting thing happened three years ago, but from the point of view of people who want to build electronic products, the, the interesting thing that happened in the spring of 2020 was that there was a, I guess, an assumption that the pandemic was going to lead to a worldwide recession, a major worldwide yeah. worldwide recession. That led to uh, electronic product manufacturers uh, and manufacturers of electronic components uh, deciding to run their inventory down. You know, the last thing you want to be stuck with in a recession is a, is a big part of unsold and so there was a period of time, probably three to six months, where people were destocking, stocking were running down their inventories. And at the same time that that was happening, the recession that people were predicting ha- wasn't arriving. And the reason for that, obviously, was governments took kind of furlough-type furlough action to uh, uh, to, you know, to, support, uh, uh, to support the income of people who weren't able to work because of the pandemic. Yeah. And so you're in an environment where you have some people who are stuck at home uh, with nothing to do because they're on furlough. Uh, you have some people who are at home and have work to do or at home and need to study from home. Uh, and all of those people um, are more, not less inclined to buy electronic products. And it took a little while for all of us who make electronics um, to realize this and to adjust our purchasing behavior accordingly. Uh, and so probably by the time you get to the autumn of 2020, you're in an environment where everyone's run their inventory down, and suddenly everyone wakes up one day and says, you know, I don't have enough stuff. I'd better go order some more chips. Yeah. In the first instance, that leads to a fairly small shortage environment. You know, lead times start to go out. But as we saw, I guess, a little earlier with you know, toilet paper and uh, toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Once there's a perception of shortage, people change their buying behavior. And so you get these kind of panic dynamics. You get people trying to build inventory. And we've seen now a two-year, really a a two-year, two-and-a-half-year period where it's been hard to get your hands on electronic components on any kind of sensible lead time at any kind of sensible price. Um, That's affected Raspberry Pi. It's affected a lot of people. Uh, You see these um, pictures from Germany of these enormous car parks outside car factories uh, full of cars that have no engine. These stories about people putting it, having one engine management computer, and you put it in your Volkswagen, you drive it out into the into the into the parking lot you take the engine management computer out and you put it in the next one and you drive that out and then you start to stockpile almost finished cars this has been affecting a lot of people and it's affected raspberry pi the interesting thing about raspberry pi for the you know we've been selling them for uh a little over 11 years now and for most of that time uh, the model we've had for getting your hands on Raspberry Pi is we'll put, well, probably maybe be half a million Raspberry Pis out there in channel at any given time, and whether you're an individual who wants to buy a single unit or an industrial customer who wakes up one day and needs ten thousand, twenty thousand, fifty thousand for a product, you can pull that from channel without really disturbing the inventory that's out there. We've gone from that world to a world where you know they are in shortage. You know yeah. where we're having you know where hobbyists are having to join queues. You're Either having to look very, monitor very closely to see inventory going out to the channel or join queues at resellers. Uh, You're seeing a world where, for our industrial customers, we're having to do what we call active management, actually, rather than just having them be available in the wild. Uh, We're actually having to kind of get in touch with our customers. It's a kind of novel idea. We're actively managing relationships now with about two and a half thousand OEM customers who embed Raspberry Pis into their products. And we have a team here who are constantly on the phone to these guys saying, like, what do you need? You know, what, what, you know, don't let us be the guy who, who stops you from being able to build your own product how many do you need to keep going today not how many do you need so you can build a buffer so you can feel yeah. comfortable but how many do you need so that your factory does not stop producing today so it's a it's a tough environment it's been a particularly tough environment obviously for the hobbyist community which are really at the kind of at the heart of what we do at raspberry pi um, i think the good news is this is the quarter where we turn the corner um i've got my numbers for Q2 this year we had a fairly lean Q1. Uh so 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 Q1 January February March this year we did under a million units of Raspberry Pi. That's a that's probably the the slowest quarter that we've had since um, 2015. I think the last time we had a quarter that that low was, was was 2015. Q2 though this year we're going to be on in the region of two million units. It's an annualised rate of eight million units. That would make it the best or second best quarter that we ever that we've ever done. Uh, and then from Q3 onwards this year, um, effectively we are unconstrained. So we have a upwards of three million units of in inbound silicon in Q3 this year, and more than that in Q4. This is the first quarter that's a, a good, a really good. Pre-pandemic quarter, we have um, we have backlogs to fill. So I think there's going to there will still be a period of time where you'll see if you're an industrial customer, you'll see uh, this active management business. You know, yeah. you'll see us calling you up and, and and trying to manage your demand and prevent stockpiling. If you're a hobbyist, I expect what you'll be exposed to is single unit orders. These kind of anti- okay. anti-scalping measures, right? Yeah. Uh, and you'll probably see that through into Q3. So I think you'll probably by the time you get into Q3, you'll be in a position where if you want a single unit and say uh, of of any product as, a, as an enthusiast, I think you'll be able to get one. And then probably by the time you get into Q4, you'll be kind of getting back into that kind of heavy inventory world where really you can have whatever you want as quickly as you want.
1: So I mean, we're, we're recording this in April, 2023. April, May, June is when things start getting a bit better. But the July is when it's hopefully back to the yeah. old days, right?
0: Yeah, back to the old days, but with kind of still expect a quarter of, uh, single, unit, of single unit limits. Right. Yep. Expect, yeah, expect but zero. I can get a bunch for Christmas yeah yeah absolutely I think that that's I think I think that's a reasonable expectation if you go and look now I think what you'll see is uh, I think what we we, we did our last um, sort of supply chain update blog yep. in December we expect to probably come back in weirdly we will come back into available general availability and broadly the order that we launched the products so I think we said that zero would come back in first and then 3 a plus. Uh, then then the other three products, and then finally four, which of course is difficult for hobbyists because I know a lot of hobbyists, they really want the latest and shiniest product, the Raspberry yeah. Pi 4. I think what you see today, if you go on RPi Locator, we do encourage people to use some of these online tools uh, to, to locate these pockets of supply. Go on Pi Locator today, you'll see that, um, three plus, three A plus is in very broad availability. Zero is, I think, coming back into availability. So three A plus and zero have come back into availability in the opposite order from what I predicted in in December. But they're coming back at about the time that we suggested. Um, I think as we get on through this quarter, you're going to see patchy availability of of three three plus and four. And then as as I say, from kind of July onwards, that's when you get the really big hits.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm just going to take I'm going to take on the role of some of the comments I've seen on YouTube, especially the hobby the hobby like sort of crowd and they feel, you know, you're not looking after them, perhaps, yeah. because you're prioritizing like certain, I mean, that's, it's, things have changed, haven't they? Because originally it was supposed to be for education and then people who, you know, use it as a hobby got involved and then it became more industrial. Um, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but what, what would you say to them? It's, you're not doing this on purpose, are you?
0: Nobody is doing this on purpose. Um, this isn't a Raspberry Pi specific problem, but it is it is a it is a problem and it's the I think I've said it's the hardest decision I've had to make in yeah. in, in in twelve years of running Raspberry Pi I've heard you say you know it's really painful for you. It's incredibly painful, right? Because I'm a hobbyist, right? I mean I'm in this I'm in this for the hobby side. I'm not in this as I'm not an OEM, I'm a hobbyist, right? Um, I think what we've got to remember is when we talk about OEMs, when we talk about industry, you're not talking about billion dollar companies. Yeah. You know, there are billion dollar companies using Raspberry Pis, deploying Raspberry Pis at scale. We have a few of these kind of whales, you know, people are buying hundreds of thousands of raspberry Pi's a year but by and large when we talk about you know i've said we have two two and a half three thousand oems that, that kind of implies your average size of oem customer is you know on the order of 1, a thousand units yeah these are a lot of these are mom and pop yeah. organizations small, business, yeah. small businesses they these are people who won't make the mortgage if if they can't get raspberry pies at the point where somebody has designed a raspberry Pi into a product there is a moral obligation to try to supply them with Material, You know, that balance, striking that balance between supplying OEMs, keeping OEMs alive and supplying individuals, it's an incredibly difficult balance to strike. I think probably, you know, one, one place where you see the consequence of us trying to make these decisions is in this sort of differential return to availability uh, that you're seeing you know, something like zero or three A plus that doesn't have a substantial OEM. Footprint, those are the devices that we see. So we're doing our best. uh, And what our best looks like is bringing the products that don't have a substantial OEM footprint back into general consumer availability first, and then backfilling with a product like Raspberry Pi 4. Raspberry Pi 4 and Compute Module 4, which both consume from the same, because this is all about core silicon. You see these FIFOs of core silicon coming in. So, you know, 2835 for Pi 1 and Pi 0, Uh, 2837 of various sorts for Pi 3 and 3, and Compute. Module three, uh, and then twenty seven eleven, and those are all 40 nanometer chips. And then twenty seven eleven, which is a, uh, a twenty eight nanometer chip. You see that. Yeah, you know, that's a that that's a different FIFO. And so you see, you know, these these FIFOs, they have different incoming rates and they have different levels of oem demand pulling on them the 2711 based products the pi4 um, uh, Pi and cm4 um were such a massive and instant success in the uh, in the industrial space that those are the ones that are going to take the longest to come back into general availability
1: i've heard you say this um and i think people maybe don't know about it or forget about it, that the software that runs on the latest Pi 4, that can still run on older versions, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And yeah, you know, an enormous amount of work goes in here into uh, maintaining everything all the way back to, we have we have the boards which are called um, alpha boards, which are the kind of, they don't look like a Raspberry Pi. They're so old that they, you have a completely different form factor in there from the summer of 2011. Um, the software the the and there are about 50 of those in existence and we have between five and ten of them here in this building and there are people in the wild who have those and will complain if a new release doesn't run on this 256 meg um alpha board from the summer of 2011 um yeah we put an enormous amount of work into it what that does mean is yeah if you need the if you need the raw computing power of a pi 4 then it's hard times at the moment yeah um but you know, if you need a uh, if you need a machine that can run the platform, and you're and you're prepared to put up with lower levels of performance, we are already and it's April. We're already in a position where there is very very good availability of some of those devices that run the software stack.
1: That's very different to other companies where you think you have to get the latest to be able to yeah. use all the product. Yeah. So what you're saying is, even if I get like a a Pi Zero, I can do stuff at home. I can learn. I don't need to get the latest and greatest and most expensive product.
0: Yeah, and we're working as hard as we can to bring the latest, greatest. Yeah, we love we love Pi Four. You know, we're putting just as we put an enormous amount of effort into maintaining compatibility with the older devices. We put an enormous amount of software effort into in between major generations of Raspberry Pi. You always see an increase in the performance of the latest and greatest device. That tends to be driven by software optimization. So you know that is. The latest and greatest device. It's probably the place where most software optimization effort is going. You know, here, here, here at Miteos. And so, of course, you know, of course, we want to get that into people's hands. You know, but we've all the way through this so this situation. We uh, we've tried to find mitigations. We have tried to find ways that people can stay engaged with the platform. Uh, we've continued to produce new accessories. Yeah, uh, you know, we launched an enormous number of camera products this year. Uh, and yeah, you know, there is there is a I think there is a school of thought that says why are you, why are you producing these camera products? You can't buy Raspberry Pis. Well, lots of people have Raspberry yeah. Pis to give people interesting new hobbyist experiences, to give people interesting new educational experiences, you don't necessarily have to ship a new pie. Uh, uh, you know, you can ship some sort of new accessory, which just gets lets people get a little bit more out of the hardware they already own.
1: Yeah, I feel for you because, I mean, I think you're in an impossible situation because I think you've mentioned it in previous interviews I've watched, um, your sales
0: were like flatlining rather than what you were hoping. If you look at our annual sales figures, 6 million in 2019, 7 million in 2020, unconstrained. A weird year, but unconstrained, right? Yeah. 7 million in 2021, very, very substantial constraint uh, conditions. So if you imagine that year, we went into that year with half a million units of of customer backlog, left the year with four and a half million units of customer backlog. Now, you can't just add those numbers together. You can't just add seven and four uh, and say that would have been an 11 million year year because there's the toilet paper. The toilet paper dynamics are in there, you know, double ordering, triple ordering, ordering for buffer. Uh, ordering for buffer build, but it's clear that there was an increase in demand i think we actually we may have seen an increase in demand as other platforms became less available as other um embedded modular platforms became less available you saw people migrating to to raspberry pi uh, not just because they liked the platform but out of a perception that it it had good availability so you you sort of see an increase in demand in 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 2021 and in an inability to grow the business in order to meet that demand and then last year five million units right so you see an wow. actual decline in uh, for the first time ever in raspberry Pi history see so a decline in in our production numbers this, 7 million to 5 million that's quite So 7 a million to 5 million and you can sort of see that if if you think that maybe um, 60 70% of your demand is is OEM industrial demand then and you, and you and you attempt to fill that demand there that's that explains why there's not a, been there's not been a huge amount of volume left over uh, to serve our you know our original core market um it's incredibly painful these are incredibly painful decisions you know these yeah. are not you know i don't you know don't uh, kind of not throwing myself on anyone's sympathy but they are they are not trivial decisions uh you know and they they, they cause pain to people who about whom we care enormously uh, and so you know you go looking for mitigations you try to do what you can you try to you try to find Pools of inventory that can be allocated. You try to find ways to, you know, we have a wonderful network of approved resellers. And of course, I feel for our approved resellers because that's their businesses as well. You know, some of our approved resellers have both an industrial and a consumer Practice and those people have been a little bit insulated from from these challenges. Some of them are very very consumer focused, and those people, you know, if, if we're not giving them stock to sell, they can't run their businesses. Um, and again, many of those are mom and pop businesses, right? So you've got these kind of this kind of balance So you're you're trying to to find pockets of inventory that you can allocate into consumer trying to find, you're working with your reseller partners to try to find ways to avoid scalping, you know, if a unit that goes it's into the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? Uh, and, you know, we've largely got in front of it now, but, you know, there was a period of time where you did have people uh, who were buying units and then reselling them on eBay. Yeah. Um, and that's just, it's, that's painful. That's that's just painful to us. You know, we don't want to see someone having to pay $100 for a $50 product, $150 for a $50 product. You know, that's not the vision, right? Um, so yeah, a lot of our resellers have got extremely creative in the way that they've they've tried to avoid this kind of behavior. Adafruit, for example, you know, you've got to say they do two-factor authentication. Effectively, you know, you can buy a Raspberry Pi per cell phone number. Um, you know, these these sorts of things where you find something that is expensive to have lots of, yeah. cell phone numbers, um, and then you tie sales to that object, you know, your, your your driving license. I mean, you know, present your driving license and you can buy one, you know, one NVIDIA graphics card per quarter per driving license. So you, know, you get people coming up with these creative solutions, we think we have got in front of it, but it's, you know, I don't think we'd ever attempt to deny the, the, the pain and the difficulty that this has caused people. It's caused,
1: I mean, it's affecting all of us.
0: Yes. You didn't start this
1: hmm. to, you know, just try and make money. Yeah. You, you started this for a good reason. So yeah. let's perhaps talk about that a bit. Yeah, let's do that. Um, like, how did it start? Because yeah. it kind of changed. You know the original yeah. vision has changed a bit over the time yeah. over time. Because you're talking about yeah. OEMs and stuff like that. Yeah. But perhaps you can take us back in time.
0: Let's take it all the way back in time, all the way back to the 1980s. So I was a kid in the 1980s, and I had a BBC microcomputer. So I had this another great Cambridge designed. Yeah. You know, the CEO. You look look back to the days of Ed of Morris Wilkes designing, you know, building 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 Ed at the at the university in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, people have always built computers in Cambridge, and there are two kind of Great. I mean, there were a number of them in the 80s, but of course, two hugely successful and influential ones, the BBC Micro, uh, which is made by a company called Acorn, which then went on to become Arm. Um, And then you have the Sinclair Spectrum. Uh, which was produced by Sinclair Research. You go all the, all the way back, and in the corner of every classroom in Britain was this beige box, and you turn it on, and it goes, boop, and makes this lovely little two-tone kind of beeping sound. It gives you a, a, a programming prompt, and I got my introduction to computing through one of these machines. That's where if you walk out into the office here and you talk to engineers, the vast majority of people are vaguely my age, between their 30s and their 50s, will have got experience of their first experience of computing their first experience of engineering using some sort of platform like that. And really what Raspberry Pi is, Raspberry Pi has its origins in a recognition about 2005 that the disappearance of those machines, those machines kind of disappeared from, became non current in the early 1990s, that a delayed action effect of that, the disappearance of those machines, was a decline in the interest in computing among young people. Yeah. Uh, and that was feeding into university recruitment, it was feeding into industrial recruitment, um, it had all sorts of negative consequences. And negative consequences for the country. Of course, I also believe it had negative consequences for individuals. One of the really, really interesting things about those machines was that you were finding people... i very you know, always been very focused on Cambridge because it's, it's somewhere I love and I have this great relationship with the university. But actually, one of the interesting things about these machines was it was providing a gateway into good, stable, white-collar employment uh, for people who wouldn't have considered themselves to be particularly academic, you know, people who would sit down in front of their spectrum and suddenly go, hang on a second, you know, I can write a computer game and I can sell this, you know, I can burn it onto a cassette and I can sell it to people for money and I can go work for a games company, I can leave school at 16 and I can, you know, spend my life in a really great white-collar job, right? So there were all of these advantages to the, uh, to, to, the to the general availability of general purpose computing in people's homes, which was a historical accident, you know, these machines weren't in, in people's homes because there was some grand design, it was maybe a little bit with the BBC Micro, but there wasn't really a grand design to promote computer literacy. It was just that it happened that the cheapest object, the most convenient object you could build that would do the things people wanted to do, play computer games, do their schoolwork, you know, do their taxes. The cheapest object you could build to do that was the general purpose programmable computer. And so you, you kind of get all of these these side effects from the general existence of, of these of these machines, both for individuals and for institutions and for the country. These machines disappear. All these nice side effects go away. And really Raspberry Pi, starting in about two thousand six through to two thousand eight, when we when we incorporated the foundation, was kind of hunting for a way to build a platform, originally at a very small scale, to build a platform that we could get into the hands of young people to reboot some of that enthusiasm.
1: I love what you said there, because I mean, you know, People who perhaps are really good at programming. I'm um, not perhaps good like in a typical white collar type job. Yeah, but I mean, computing yeah. gives you
0: so many options. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I mean, i I've had a very um, I've had a very traditional, very academic route, I guess, through the first twenty five. To thirty years of my life, so I was. Uh, I, I, I went to school. I, 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 I studied. Um, I, I specialised in uh, in science in the sixth form, the sixteen to eighteen. Um, I went to work for IBM for a year. I was very, very lucky that IBM had a um, a wonderful pre university programme a chap called Ian Lussie, um, who, who uh, uh, ran their pre university programme. We got and get fifty to sixty. 18 year olds every year uh give them a year at IBM doing real work and the wonderful thing about Ian was that uh, he'd recruit people uh he'd have some in his his group in Warwick in the Midlands in the UK um and then he'd farm them out to other IBM locations uh in the UK I was very lucky to be in his group but you know of the 60 say 50 of them wouldn't have been in his group Uh, but god help you if you took one of Ian's pre-university employees and made them make the tea or do photocopying? He had to give them real, real work to do. And I used to sit near his office, and I used to hear him shouting. Uh, every now and then, he'd be on the phone to somebody shouting at them because he they discovered that a PUE had been uh, had been betrayed uh, and had been made to make the coffee. Um, and and so so you so that so I did that. Came to Cambridge, uh, did my undergraduate, uh, um, dropped out of my undergraduate. I should run a games company. Founded the games company when I was a third year here. Um, uh, did that, sold that, did a PhD. Uh, so kind of very traditional academic flow through, but. It Kind of in parallel with the academic track that kind of very um craftsman like thing you know like i, was, I started a games company i've always been kind of interested in the craft of computing the cra- the craft of computer programming the craft of software development there are some people who only have the academic side and there are some people who only have the craft side i mean as i say i've, I've met some amazing engineers software engineers left school at 16 never felt they needed to do anything else they just went straight into a programming job um, uh, and 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 thrived in it and so you get some people who have both sides but i think you know what's worked well for me and what we tried to promote with raspberry pi and what i think giving academically minded young people access to a general purpose computer gives is the opportunity to have both sides is the opportunity to have both the and it doesn't really matter which order you learn them in i learned the craft writing assembly language when i was when i was 14 uh, i learned the craft and then i learned the theory um, but you get people who learn the theory and then the craft but if you don't have some sort of platform that you can hack around on and ha- a low consequence environment we talk about raspberry Pisces, you know this says you've got a raspberry pi zero um uh, there it's a five dollar was ten dollars now but was a five dollar machine machines that are so cheap and you know that are, that are fully featured unix machines but are so cheap that if you break it you can just go and Get another one. Uh, you know, giving people that kind of low consequence hacking environment is a really important contributor to building these rounded. Both to giving the people who don't consider themselves to be uh, academic a routine, and to give the people who do consider themselves to be academic to have a kind of a more rounded approach to what computing really means.
1: You mentioned the word hacking, and a lot of people that watch my channel are into
0: hacking of various types.
1: I believe there's a story you said when you were at school, where. You, you, you know where oh, I'm going. You can tell I do. The
0: story. I, I do. Uh, this is this is about the this is about me having the school with twelve classes and thirteen accounts. There, there was a a series of machines called there was a company called Research Machines. They still exist, and they built a machine called the Nimbus, which was actually a, a, a slightly horrible machine. And it was one of these one of these nearly IBM compatible machines. Um, it's sort of an, an, an Intel 8086, 8088 based machine that was almost uh, IBM compatible, and we um, uh, we had a. One One of these with an Ethernet 10 base T. Ethernet uh, running around this every class had an account and I somehow managed to jailbreak my way out of the out of the class um, out of the sandbox that the classes were in to get myself access particularly to, to basic I mean on any of these machines the goal was get yourself access either to a DOS prompt uh, or to a basic prompt and on, so they
1: um, would force you into a sandbox like you could only use certain applications yeah, yeah, that's that it, right? that's and, it, you right. and, and of-
0: usually you know usually it was a matter of finding something you know, finding something you could write to the disk or finding a moment a crack you know a, a moment we're hitting the right key would drop you out. Usually when you were launching an application, you know, if I hit the right key here, then uh, it'll drop me to you. Something will crash, and it'll drop me to a prompt. Uh, and I got yeah, I, I managed it. On in both my middle school and my secondary school, I was able to find ways to, to get out of the sandbox. And of course, the, the the way you get the what you get paid for getting out of the sandbox and for not teaching other children how to get out of the sandbox uh, is you get your own account. You get your own account with no sandbox. And so, both my middle school and my and my secondary school, I I had I had privileged network access. It's interesting because what's really important, you know, as much as you know, you look at what what we tried to build at the foundation. In terms of infrastructure, you know, it's very easy to, I mean, particularly because we're at Raspberry Pi Limited here, we're at the, the trading subsidiary of the foundation. It's very easy to focus on the physical objects or the, you know, the, the the hardware objects or the software objects. But a lot of what we've actually tried to build with the Raspberry Pi organization is to build the um, organizational infrastructure, the social infrastructure, to rebuild the social infrastructure that you require in order to have a good experience with computing. So, you know, what, what did the social infrastructure look like for me as a child? Teachers who'd give me, he would respond to me hacking the school network network by giving me an account on the uh, on my, my own private account rather than sending me to the headmaster and putting me in detention right you know people who would engage with well-intentioned but some potentially disruptive enthusiasm in in, in a positive rather than a negative way you know I talk a lot about there's a fellow called Alan drew who who sadly is sadly is no longer with us um, he ran um, uh, IT for um, Lees permanent building society you know one of the large you um, one of the large financial institutions uh, in Leeds when I grew up in Yorkshire. Um, and every other Friday evening, he would come around to my house in his MPV and I would have um, packed up my um, uh, my BBC Micro in its um, uh, expanded polystyrene case. And we would he would drive me to the local college and we'd go to Computer Club from 7.30 to 9.30 in the evening every other Friday. And it was that was just a wonderful environment for me because it gave me a venue to see what other people, it gave me a venue to show off. It gave me a venue to show what I'd made and it gave me a venue you to see what other people have made and be, be inspired, you know, be encouraged, be inspired, uh, be chastised for things I know I, I hadn't done a good thing. And so you kind of look at what the foundation's been doing. You know, how does that reflect in the foundation's activities? Well, a big focus on clubs, Code Club and Code and Dojo, the kind of two big um, club programs. Um, and then the teacher training programs, by Academy, and then the National Center for Computing Education. Yeah, you know, the foundation's been very focused on generating both the informal out of school or after school in environments, but also ensuring that teachers are well equipped to be enthusiastic, do not feel threatened by a child who comes and does something wacky in class You actually feel that they've got the support, feel they've got the knowledge, feel they've got the collateral behind them required to deliver, um, you know, deliver a, a quality computer learning experience to everybody.
1: I love that though because your teachers didn't, like you say, send you to the headmaster
0: yeah. They, they kind of
1: like grew that passion that you had. Yeah. Mr. They didn't try and lock it away. Mr. Away.
0: Stewart and Mr. Wright. Uh, kudos yeah. to
1: them because I mean, yeah. if, if they had like come on top of you like like a ton of bricks, Hmm. We might not have had this today.
0: That's it, right? You know, you can every, everyone can put their everyone who's had a positive trajectory in computing can put their finger on one or two moments where they might have had a negative experience or just a neutral experience. You have this learning curve that has ten print. I'm the best. Twenty go to ten at one end of it, and has I'm a professional computer scientist, chip designer, software engineer at uh, the other end of it. And a lot of the work that we do is is about sanding that learning curve. It's about taking the bumps out, you know, and providing people with the the the, the underpinnings because everyone's going to hit a you're never going to sand it completely smooth. Everyone is going to is going to hit some kind of road bump at some point. And the question is, what infrastructure do you have to support you? And what infrastructure do you have? You know, I grew up in a lovely town, my father was an academic. Um, you know, it was I had a lot of Uh, Privilege as a child, you know. I don't don't talk about too much about privilege, but I had a very a a wonderful privileged, blessed childhood. But a lot of people don't have that, uh, and so you'll find if you grew up in Cambridge, um, your school will be besieged by volunteers to run after-school clubs. If you're 30 miles north of here, uh, up in up in Norfolk, maybe you don't. Maybe your school has nobody who is interested in uh, in running an after-school club. You, know, you maybe have no volunteers in the community. It's one of the reasons why engagement with teachers is so important. I come from this kind of anarchist kind of approach to this, where you know everything I did was like like let's hack ha- let's hack the school network. Let's go to a club. Let's go to where an after-school club and then go to the pub afterwards um you know i come from that kind of world and when i came into raspberry pi that was the ethos that i brought with me uh and probably you know we talk about the various ways in which our our thinking has matured uh and one of the ways is is the idea that um that is an incredibly That is the product of an incredibly privileged background to think that that is a viable strategy for all children everywhere, and actually that engagement with the formal education system. The formal education system is the thing that gives people the underpinning, is the thing that gives people the backstop, the guarantee that they will get some exposure to computing. If you go and look at the computer industry, we hark back to the 1980s and it was a wonderful time, but if you go and look at the diversity of people in the computing industry, middle-aged people in the computing industry, uh, it's all people who look like me. Yep. It's all people, you know. It's it's it's, it's white men from uh, middle-class backgrounds. Why is it white men from middle-class backgrounds? Because those were the people who were messing around with computers in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, the, by engaging with the formal system, yeah, that's the only way that you're going to reach the people. Uh, uh, that's the only way that you're not going to continue to perpetuate the, the demographic weirdness of, uh, of our industry. And yeah, you know, it's great. You know, I hope we always have lots of like you know people who look like me in this industry. But I hope that we also well, you know, one of the interesting things when you look at the people who are participating in Code Club, for example, which is our, our the foundation's program for nine to thirteen year olds. It looks a lot more like society. You know, uh, over forty percent of the people uh, going to Code Club are girls um, at a critical age, nine to thirteen, at a critical age where girls often disengage a little bit from you know the society. Some something in the culture tends to at a point where girls. Often performing as well or better than boys, um, something in the culture starts to tell girls that this is not for them. Um, if you're a school which has a large number of deprived, children, if you measure deprivation by the proportion of people who are entitled to free school meals, subsidized school meals. Um, If you're a school with a high index of deprivation, you are slightly more likely to have a code club than if you're a school with a low level of deprivation. What that means is if we kind of look 20, 30, 40 years into the future, there's real opportunity, there's real chance that if you were to walk out into, uh, into an office, into a computing office, that the people you would see would be in all dimensions much more representative of society as a whole. And that's got to be a good thing, right? These are amazing opportunities and we have to make sure that, yeah, you know, two angles. One, for individuals, they're amazing opportunities and we have to make sure that people have access to those opportunities. Um, two, we're in an industry that's massively hungry for talent and we can't afford to let some pool of talent sit idle, sit fallow. You know, we can't afford to not discover that great computer programmer who happens to be uh, from some underrepresented background.
1: I love that. I mean, the, the story if I understand it correctly originally was you had a, you at Cambridge and you noticed like these the student applicants were going down and Cambridge is obviously very different to like people perhaps in Africa you've been yeah. in Africa yeah. what you've created, has fulfilled that, because you can tell yeah. the story, obviously, much yeah. better than me, but like, the applicant numbers went up, but you've also affected yeah. the whole world. Yeah, it's amazing the
0: how moderate the vision was, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. you know, that we were- <laughs> To
1: what it's become. Yeah, me. yeah,
0: it's, it's um, you know, we thought, well, we'll build a thousand units and we'll get them into the hands of the right thousand kids, and then if a tenth of those apply to study computer science at Cambridge, we went from, we want to we find about 100 kids a year to come to Cambridge to study computing and we were down to about 200 applicants i mean that's incredible right in 2008 if you wanted to get your kid into cambridge to read physics the best way to get them in was to get them to apply to computer science and then switch once they're here right you know you know there aren't many courses at cambridge that have a two to one application ratio right and so this is a really simple ambition you know Give out a thousand computers, get an extra hundred applicants. Oh, now we've got three hundred applicants for a hundred places. That's really a material change. Now, what's actually happened is devices have gone out in vastly larger numbers than that, and they've gone out in a vastly more disorganised way. It's not that kind of like kind of rifle shot, that kind of like sort. Of, let's go snipe that population there. Let's go get these people. Um, it's a it's this very broad, uh, very broad deployment of units. Only a small number of which have got into education, but that small fraction is still vastly more than a thousand units. Um, last year we had about fifty. 1500 applicants it's gone from being one of the easiest courses to get into to being absolutely one of the most challenging courses people should still apply we do still need talent um, but it is certainly very challenging and we've seen that And that's not just us that's not just us that's all of these other people who woke up at about the same time and, and realized there was a problem and tried to solve it all the people who started after school clubs all the organizations and started trying to try to trained teachers, um, the government's curriculum reform. I mean, we have an incredibly better curriculum. You compare the curriculum, the very office skills centric ICT curriculum that we had back in 2012 that was then disapplied and replaced by this completely insane, well-designed, computer science curriculum from about 2015 onwards. So you see all of these things have happened, and they've all had a contribution, but the net, the aggregate effect um, at Cambridge has been measurable in this kind of sort of sevenfold increase in the number of applicants between 2008 and about 2019. Um, And you see that mirrored everywhere else. You see that mirrored elsewhere in the UK. You see that kind of resurgence elsewhere in the world. Raspberry Pi, I think, has been an important part of it. Um, But the interesting thing is that our ambitions have grown as we've succeeded more, we've got hungrier, we haven't got less hungry, we've got hungrier. And so the question is, you know, can we do it? Okay, we've done it for Cambridge, can we do it for other institutions in the UK? We've done it in the UK, can we do it in other developed world countries? We've done it in the developed world, can we do it in low middle, low and middle income countries? Um, you know, one of the things I'm absolutely most excited about at the moment is our impact in Africa. Uh, I've, had a couple of, I've had a chance over the last six months to go to Ghana, to go to Kenya, I'm just back from Morocco. Oh, wow. And you just see this level of desire this level of hunger for the opportunities that general purpose computing brings the economic opportunities the educational opportunities the chance for the chance for advancement for the individual the chance for advancement for the for for a country uh we went to very lucky went to the in morocco went to the uh, university of mohammed the sixth polytechnic um about halfway between marrakesh and casablanca uh this huge these vast buildings this enormous technology university that's been built over the last 10 years uh really in, on a greenfield site in in morocco and just that ambition you talk to the people there and you see that there is the ambition not to catch up with what we have here in the UK, what people have in North America, what people have elsewhere in in, in Western Europe, um, but to but to leapfrog over it, you know, a real uh, desire to to kind of seize control of their sort of technological destiny, and to do that not just for one country, not just for Morocco, but to share that advancement with with all the countries in in, in North Africa and in Sub-Saharan Africa. From day one, we've always had a very strong reseller presence in South Africa. Um, and, and so for, for a long time, Africa for us really meant South Africa. I think as it's the case for a lot of technology companies, right? Africa really means maybe South Africa, maybe some of the countries in North Africa, maybe Egypt. Um, uh, but, you know, certainly uh, other bits of Francophone North Africa uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa not really figuring on. Um, Mike Buffum, who's our chief commercial officer, he's he said, uh, we, I went to Kenya with him in uh, October last year, and we did a panel, and he said, um, yeah, he's had roles at a lot of, uh, before Raspberry Pi, roles at a lot of electronics companies, distribution companies for 30 years, all of with all of which have global in their title. And the first time he went to Africa was in January last year. It's crazy. Right. It's incredible, right? Yeah.
1: And there's so uh, much talent and young talent. Oh, so many young, young people. It's a young, it's a young,
0: it's a young yeah. continent, right? Yeah. It's a young continent. A couple of years ago, um, just before the pandemic, we hired um, a, a chap called Ken Okolo, uh, who's based in Lagos. He was introduced to us. We're very lucky that we have, so, uh, um, John Lazar, uh, who's the chairman of the foundation, uh, is uh, is a South African, uh, originally has has a real focus on kind of, I guess, entrepreneurial engagement um, in in Africa. Um, And he was able to introduce us to Ken. Ken joined us um, uh, as our strategic partnership director in Africa. And really what he's been doing since he joined us is actually not some of the aspects of how the market works are different in Africa, but really what he's built building is infrastructure which feels very familiar to us what he's doing is he's building um, reseller networks uh, yeah, the thing that's powered the um, the adoption of Raspberry Pi in the in our in our kind of existing core markets is this network of about a hundred approved resellers who we you know we regulate their pricing you know we, we we require them to sell at no more than a certain price we provide them with access to uh, to to our products at a, a favorable price we provide them with clickstream you know so if you come to our website and and click on buy for a product, we will geolocate you and send you to an approved reseller in your local geography. So the approved reseller is kind of the heart of the Raspberry Pi um, kind of outbound operation. Um, We haven't had those in Africa and what we've been doing is is country by country booting up very familiar looking AR networks, the way that those ARs do business with their customers is often different from the way that, that, that you would do that in the UK. The way that we get product to them is often different. There are often some uh, logistical challenges, um, taxation challenges, duty challenges involved in getting getting um, hardware to them. But what they're doing is very familiar. What they're doing, they are just just approved resellers. Um, uh, we were in uh, in Morocco uh, in March, onboarded and approved uh, onboarded an approved reseller who looks like they're about to become our largest approved reseller, kind of almost from a standing start to become our largest approved reseller outside of in Africa, outside of South Africa. Um, uh, people who've been actually selling Raspberry Pi's for a long period of time, but not as an approved reseller. And that's non-approved resellers is fine. There's nothing wrong with non-approved resellers. It just means these are not people where we regulate. This, this is somewhere where we don't regulate the buying experience. And so you take somebody who's been actually a passionate advocate um, for uh, for Raspberry Pi for a number of years, but outside the tent. You bring them into the tent and you give them access to supply and you give them access to pricing and all of a sudden these things, they explode. And, And they're exploding because they're a little bit like Raspberry Pi in the UK in 2012. There is latent demand for these products in the African market. And all we're doing is we're dropping well-developed, yeah, obviously, products which are vastly more sophisticated than our 2012-era product. We're dropping these products into a, like putting a crystal in a super-saturated solution. You drop them in, bang, you know, suddenly you're accessing this enormous reservoir of demand. It's
1: amazing. Yeah, I mean, we the, the computer industry needs more and more people. I mean, oh, I mean yeah. what you're doing is you're empowering all of these people to learn. I wanted to ask you, you've used this term a few times today, and I've, I've heard you use it before, general-purpose computing versus say an iPhone.
0: Yeah. What's the difference and why is this so important? We are really passionate advocates for general purpose computing. So a general purpose computer is it's a Turing machine, right? It's a thing that can do anything. You can program it to do anything. You can sit in front of it and you can program it to do anything a computer can do.
1: Uh, you you Um, were thinking people would use it for games and then you use this example of cucumbers or something yeah that's it
0: so and so so and and that's the lovely thing about general purpose computing is how it you unlock creativity when you put general if you put special purpose computers out in the world all they can be used for is the thing that you intended them for so you put a games console out in the world it gets used to play computer games you put a you know a, a mobile phone out in the world it gets used to yeah make phone calls um run apps, but fundamentally run apps that other people have developed somewhere else, you know, um, play content that other people have created, not create not create really meaningful content yourself. When you make an appliance, you bound the things that people do with it. The point about general purpose computers, you can do literally anything. So, you know, when I conceived of Raspberry Pi, um, I didn't want to put the GPIO header on there. I didn't see what the point was of, of the GPIO header. And, and, and Pete Lomas, one of my co-founders, designed the Raspberry Pi one. Um, and he, he said, well, look, you've got these GPIO pins on the chip. We should bring them to a header and i'm like are you sure you know i'm not sure how robust those pins are you know what if someone sends static shocks into them with their finger uh and and so i, I you know i wasn't designing it so i i yielded to his enthusiasm for it <laughs> thank and of goodness. course yeah thank goodness i mean if i hadn't then you know the my vision that this was that people were going to use you know that i i suffered from a paucity of vision i thought that because i use my BBC and in Miami, you to write computer games, that's what people would do with Raspberry Pis. Um, and it turns out the majority of what people in education do with Raspberry Pis is physical computing. They do robotics, they do sensing, they do monitoring, they do those sorts of things. And that's what gets people excited. So uh, you see, it's 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 the power of general purpose computing. General purpose computing doesn't have to exist. As I, I, think, I think I said earlier, there was a period of time when the general purpose computer just happened, if you wanted to play computer games, the cheapest thing you could make and give to somebody to, to, to do that happened to be a general purpose computer. And then over time, people found found ways to make both technical and business model innovations enabled the rise probably of you know, certainly the 16 and 32 bit uh, games consoles were a combination of technical and business innovation, which kind of nibbled away at a big fraction of the deployed base of general purpose computers. And there's really no reason why that, that nibbling won't continue until there are no general purpose computers. I mean, the Chromebook is a fascinating example of this. Yeah. You know, what was the the remaining citadel, really, of general purpose computing until Raspberry Pi came along? The remaining citadel of general purpose computing in the consumer world was the PC and the Mac, and those were largely laptops. And that yeah. felt like a very secure citadel. But of course, the Chromebook is a really interesting attack on that. Is It's people have managed to figure out a way to make an object that looks a lot like a laptop, can do most of the things that um, consumers Consumers want from a laptop, and yet it's not really a general purpose computer. And so, Raspberry Pi, you know, we will always make general purpose computers. So there is no point in us making appliances. That's not what we're on the planet for. We sold 50 million of them, right? You know, we put a lot of general purpose computers into the wild. Um, and we're, we're just passionate advocates for it on all fronts, both as an educational tool, but also as a platform for OEM customers, for industrial customers to innovate around.
1: Eben, I've heard rumors, and I think you've said it in other interviews, about perhaps a possible IPO.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, we, you know, I have this piece of paper I read from time to time that says we look for whenever, when people ask that question. You know, we always look at uh, ways of funding the future growth of our company. We looked at the possibility of doing an IPO. We invested a little bit of money. I think you can see this from our accounts. We invested a little bit of money um, in, I guess, 2020 calendar, 21 in understanding whether an IPO um, might be a, might be a track we could go down. The semiconductor shortage, two problems with doing an IPO um, for the business, certainly in that sort of time frame. One, the shortage makes it hard to be predictable. It makes it hard to, to understand what the business is going to do and what, what does the market want? The market wants predictability. And the other thing is just generally there is this notion the markets are closed. By this time last year, the markets were closed. There was a huge amount of IPO activity in 2021. Um, and then there was really no IPO. I mean, certainly in London, there was no IPO activity really in 2022. So, so that's not really something that we have been able to pursue. I mean, I'm not saying it's something we won't come back to. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a potential path in particular. It's a potential path for the foundation uh, to, to realize some of the value. Um, in the uh, in in the trading in the trading company, Raspberry Pi Limited. So it's something, I mean, it's an interesting, it was an interesting journey, you know, uh, investigating it was an interesting journey. We met some great people, had some great conversations. Um, and it is something, you know, it might be something we'll come back to in a few years.
1: You've developed your own custom silicon, is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, so 2021, January 2021, we released Raspberry Pi Pico, which is a lovely, look, it's a lovely product. But the thing that's really interesting about it is it's the first time we've released a product where the core silicon, was also designed at Raspberry Pi. So we talk about it being a board that has two Raspberry Pi logos on it. It has a logo on the board that has a logo on the chip. Now... That turned up at a really interesting time for us it turned up just as the supply chain challenges were starting to bite in our core business we talked about mitigations we talked about trying to find our enthusiast Community other things to be enthusiastic about other things to to be involved with during this kind of difficult period um, being able to offer a platform in Pico and RP 2040 which we knew we could make as many as we want you know there was there's no problem if, if you want 10 million Picos or 10 million rp2040s I can probably deliver them to you pretty quickly there's no real uh, constraint on my doing that so having an unconstrained platform during this difficult time is nice rp2040 is a lovely chip The team here did an amazing job designing it it's very nearly perfect uh in a way that you know an application processor, the big chips that go into the big products can never be perfect they're too large they're too complicated to ever be kind of perfectible you know they're extremely good but they're not perfect um that chip is is within its kind of design envelope is pretty much as good, as good as it could possibly be. And it's very kind of satisfying to be, have been involved with and to be shipping a product based on a piece of silicon that's just just right, you know. Something that's based on you know, the other team here. They've been working with microcontrollers for decades individually, obviously within the organization. Raspberry Pi has been shipping microcontroller based products for a decade, you know, the core, not the core product, but the accessory products, almost all have microcontrollers of some sort. In Individuals have been involved with microcontrollers for decades. Everyone accumulates kind of ideas of, What's good? What's bad? You know, what features did I enjoy in this microcontroller? What features do I wish I'd had? Really, our RP twenty forty is kind of a kind of a, I guess a consolidation of all of those insights that members of the team have had over the years, all of them consolidated down into this piece of silicon. Obviously, a piece of silicon that's on a fairly advanced process node by microcontroller standards on 40 nanometers. We get about 21,000 die out of each 300 millimeter wafer. One of the reasons why it's in good supply, get 25 wafers, it's half a million chips. Kind of the minimum unit of wafers that you'll get from a foundry is generally a, a cartridge, 25 wafers, uh, it's half a million chips. And so you know, even fairly small supplies of upstream wafer um, starts, turns into a lot of inventory for us.
1: But I mean, that raises the issue of, like, how do you fund that? Is, I'm assuming it costs a lot of money to design all of that and rather than like just use merchant silicon
0: yeah um i mean rp2040 i think was about my mental model of it and it's always interesting to look in the accounts and see whether whether your mental model aligns with reality um is that it was a about a five million dollar wow about five million dollar program
1: and you sell them for
0: uh, we sell them for 50 cents wow. right so we of investment. don't make you 50 cents on each unit it's not it's not a thing that costs 10 cents to make so you sell it for 50 cents you wholesale at 50 cents uh retail it between 70 cents and a dollar depending on the um uh depending on volume um so you you know you got to sell uh if you wanted to make your money back on chips alone you'd have to sell 20 30 40 50 million chips now the interesting thing of course is we're in a privileged position because we also make pico uh, we make the product that's built on the uh, on the chip, and of course the the margins on that again. That's a four dollar product for Pico, but the margins on Pico are substantially better than the margins on RP twenty forty. So you can kind of say, well, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pay this program back on the back of Pico, which I couldn't have done without it. Uh, and then I'm not going to feel so bad about the fact that I'm only making, 10, only, only making 10 cents on an RP2040.
1: How do you fund that? Is, is IPO an option? Is like, private, Do you have private investors?
0: Uh, it's a little bit of a mix. I mean, historically, Raspberry Pi was entirely funded by, it was organically funded. Essential oh, so sales? Yeah, just from sales, just from profits on, on selling Raspberry Pis and accessories. So, you know, over the years, you know, we've returned between 30 and 40 million pounds to the foundation, to our shareholder, but we retain some of the profits we make inside our organization as well. And that's the money that's paid for things like programs like Raspberry Pi 4, you know, Raspberry Pi 4 was not a cheap program. Programs like RP2040 and Pico, it's, the, it's what will fund whatever we, you know, when we decide what we're gonna do next, it's what will fund what we do next.
1: How do you decide what to make? Like, you've been through oh, so many different, like, uh, yeah. products, like, we've yeah. got some of them here, but, and some of them we don't, but how yeah. do you decide what to make?
0: Uh, we make what we want to make. We make what we want ourselves. It's an unfashionable way of making, pro- of, of, of designing products, I guess, these days. Um, you're supposed to focus group everything to death. The nice thing about making a product that you want, I think there's another fruit company that's famous for doing this as well, right? Yep. If you make products that you want, then at least one person wants them. If you make products by focus grouping and by interpolating, the the, the the thing that I think is a killer in product design is where you have two, you identify two genuine pools of demand, and then you think, wow, it'd be efficient if I could make one product. That serves both these pools of demand. So you interpolate and you make some products in the middle that lands between the two and is of no interest to either side. So you, it's very easy if you do that kind of approach to make a product that has no customers. Uh, if you make a product you want, at least there's one customer. And in practice, there's a lot of people like me. There's a lot of people like the oh, yeah, I'm not the. I, it's not like I sit down and design these products myself. We all sit down together and decide what we want to build. Um, there's a lot of people like us, and that's why there's demand for Raspberry Pi because we are an engineer-led organisation that is designing products that are appealing to. To engineers
1: I love that because I think a lot of people especially the techie people watching will say that companies lose their way when yeah. it's all about sales yeah. and it's no longer the engineers
0: yeah and, and it doesn't always hit I mean we you know we've had some products TV hat I think was not not the biggest success in the world I mean it sold out you know we have the you know we always fairly conservative one particularly when we do something which is novel we're always fairly conservative about how many we make we do always trade out eventually. Um, but we have a few products that took a few years to trade out. The initial build volume, I think TV Hat was the, the obvious example. And we have you know, recent, a good example of a recent product, Global Shutter. The Global Shutter camera, I mean, it's an amazing product. But again, it's a product that has a very, it could be quite nichey. I was going to say it's a um, niche product. It, yeah, it's going to be super interesting to a niche. Yeah. And we don't know how big that niche is. And so we've been quite conservative about how many of those we build. Even though we really believe in it as a product, we have to not get ourselves in a situation where we're sitting on 000, 000 a million dollars of stock that's going to take us. 20 years to sell right
1: you've walked a journey and i mean you've shared some of like the products that you make are the products that you'd want but like you've walked this road now and there's a lot of people watching that are perhaps starting their journey or you know they're inspired by you many people are inspired by you what advice would you give your younger self or someone who's starting out you know we've spoken about some of this offline and
0: i have i have a general reservation about advice right yeah and and the, the general reservation is that um a lot of what's happened. A lot of what what's happened to anyone who is successful in business is they've been lucky. And you can stack the deck and you can make your own luck. But in the end, you know, I look at the history of Raspberry Pi and so many of the things which were really, really meaningful to us were very contingent. You know, they didn't have to happen. It was somebody bumped into a guy, you know, uh, Alan Mycroft, one of our founding trustees, bumped into Pete Lomas, another founding trustee who designed the first product, bumped into him at some conference at Imperial and took him for a walk in Hyde Park and told him about what we are trying to do and recruited him that way. So, you know, you have those those kind of, uh, they're often personal, Relationships kind of happenstance, um, so so that's, that's that's it's an important caveat. And anyone who stands up and says I made it in business because I'm I'm a goddamn genius is. Is, is a liar. It's just, is, is a liar is delusional. I mean, you can stack the deck. I mean, things that have been good for us, getting into things that have been good for me, getting in touch with the market early. People talk about minimum viable products, yep. building minimum viable products. It's easy to sit in an ivory tower and think about what the perfect product would be and spend years working on it. When really, if you've got in touch with the market, well, there's nothing to stop you keeping working after you've launched that first product. You can keep working, you can keep fettling it, but you'll be fettling it in the context of having market feedback. And that's been that's been very good to us um i do have an mba um and, and i'm quite an advocate for doing an mba at some point in your career it doesn't have it's a little bit like I'm, a, I'm an advocate for hacking on computers when you're eight years old and then doing a computer science degree i'm kind of an advocate for founding a bunch of businesses and screwing them up um and then to, to some degree um and then and then um and then doing an mba i'm much more of an advocate for that than i am doing a computer science degree if you've never programmed a computer or doing an MBA if you've never started a business, right? I found, I did the MBA here at Cambridge um, and I, I found there were a lot of really useful strategic insights, particularly about um you know, how you how you structure a business to be sustainable in the long run, how you manage talent, how you decide what work you're going to do inside the organization and what work you're going to do outside the organization. Companies are so ubiquitous in the world um, that, that people don't think very much about why companies exist at all. You know, like, why can't we have a world which is just built out of free contractors, freely contracting entities that do commercial transactions with each other? And of course, you know, you have this tension. That That, that approach doesn't work because you have transaction cost economics, right? You know, it's very, it's very uh labor intensive to constantly set up and tear down commercial relationships between free freely contracting individuals so up to a certain size uh, corporations have an advantage because um they, they you know they 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 hide all that transaction cost of the economy. So you just get a pool of labor get a pool of talent and then apply it to problems without having to constantly write new contracts Uh, and then above a certain size because inside a corporation you're effectively it's a planned economy right and we all know planned economies don't work very well right on the one on the one hand why don't you have a whole sea of freely contracting individuals on the other side why don't you just have megacorp why yeah. don't you have well so union was megacorp wasn't it That didn't, didn't work very well um, so there are there's there's a dynamic tension there and so sort of understanding what you do inside your organization and what you what, what you do through contracting what you do through third parties understanding what sorts of innovation can be supported in a contracting fashion and what sorts of innovation really are best done inside the planned economy of a uh, uh, of a single corporation is, is is an important it's an interesting i mean it, just like with computer science right there is a body of Professional knowledge. There's a body of theoretical practice associated with running a business, um, and it's really easy to disdain it, right? You know, because yeah, okay, you know, we we have this kind of culture of the macho, um, yeah, you know, guy who started off, you know. Alan Sugar kind of character, you know, guy who started off running a, you know, selling stuff in a, on a stall and ends up running a big corporation, right, uh, and never did a day's executive head in his life. And that's great. And there are savants like that out there, either lucky people or savants out there who will who will kind of walk that road. Um, but for most of us, I think um, that's an expensive way. So I talked about, you know, the cost of an MBA, you know, tens of thousands of pounds. Uh, an MBA is the cheap way. get business experience. The expensive way to get business experience is to start some companies, screw them up, learn the lessons. Uh, It might save you, you know, that that, those MBA fees might save you and save a couple of companies um, uh, the experience of, of being founded and screwed up.
1: You started like hacking when you were young, then you went into like hardcore tech. You were designing chips, really technical, and then like your roles kind of changed over the years. Now
0: you're more business focused. Yeah, I'm. 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 I'm extremely business focused now. I try to keep up with the people we have. We have an amazing workforce here. Obviously, yeah, the engineering workforce here is is by far the highest average capability level that I've ever engaged with and I go out there and I have to try and help people understand what to do, think about what to do next. And that's kind of an intimidating environment. I try to stay current. I am not especially current. Uh, I I I live in fear of becoming less current. I'm still at a level of technical ability, a level of technical involvement where I can at least ask at least half the questions aren't dumb, which is which is good. That's a good ratio. If I can keep the ratio above fifty percent, then you know you sort of still feel like you're hanging hanging on by your fingernails to the uh, to the edge of uh, the edge of technical relevance. And it's a great bunch. It's a great bunch of people. I mean, it's it is a it's a wonderful group of people. I know, I've got, of course, many of whom I've known for for well over a decade now. It's a wonderful group of people to be doing innovation with
1: here's a nasty question right
0: do i need to go to university oh do you need to go do you need to go to university i don't think you need to go to university i think there are some challenges our society's got itself into a bit of a hole in respect of whether you need to have a university degree and there's a risk that what's happening to degrees is they're becoming badges of conformance uh, and badges of conformity, um, and that you're, what you're saying is I was prepared. To, here's a token. I was prepared to spend fifty thousand pounds to buy this token, um, and 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 what that token tells you is that I conform. Uh, and what employers want, what a lot of employers want is people who will con- All employers. I mean, it's a res- it's a respectable want for an employer to want employees who conform. Um, to certain standards um, uh, 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 of socialization. And the real risk is that all we've done is we've created this token. And if you don't have the token, then people think, oh, you must be a bit odd. Perhaps you'll be a bit, oh, you're a bit odd. Do I really want to hire someone who's a bit odd? That's a really dangerous place for society to have got to. So I think there's enormous value in degrees, and I don't just think that there's value in degrees, which are, I mean, my father was an English academic. Um, I'm not one of these people who thinks that university is a a training ground for employees, you know, and that the only worthwhile degrees are the ones that couple directly into some transferable, commercial, uh, employable skill you know, it's a horrible way of thinking about education. And so I think there's, there is enormous value in it. Um, uh, and, and in the particular case of computer science, I think it has value in in the sense of, a little bit like the MBA thing. I, I once met a, a guy who was working for a graphics company in Finland. Now the Finns are amazing, a lot of amazing Finnish engineers. And this guy, was working on a compiler for GL, the GL shading language, a component of the, uh, the OpenGL driver that we were gonna license for, for, for the video call platform. And he had never been to university, amazing engineer. And he had written this compiler from scratch. And he had, through intellectual brute force, had invented, you know, all of compiler technology, wow. all the way through to the mid 1970s, you know, from scratch. Um, he could have done a six-week compiler course at university and not had to do that. Um, And it would have got him to the state of the art in 2000, not the state of the art in 1975. Um, So there are... It's important, again, not to disdain the body of professional practice. And, and and you know, having respect for the body of professional knowledge can sit alongside having respect for and acknowledging the importance of practical endeavor as a way of kind of leavening that. If you want to go get a job in, in you know, as a, an engineer in the computer industry, yeah, it's good to get a computer science degree at some point. It'll save your effort in the same way it will save, uh, someone who wants to start an MBA will say, save a business person some effort. Um, but it's not to say you can't get there the other way. But I, I honestly think it's a harder road.
1: I, I, I mean, you talk I love what you said. You're talking from experience. Like you had some businesses some of them didn't go so well some of them went well if you had done the MBA it's like learning from people who've
0: walked their road before you I certainly in terms of you sort of think about going back to going back to university so I did my first startup when I was a third year here at Cambridge I dropped out of the fourth year of the engineering program to run that startup found a couple of things one uh, like a lot of I think like a lot of uh, engineer-led startups we had a big pile of paper in the corner of the room the government would send us paperwork and we put it in the corner and ignore it um or our bank would send us paperwork and we were, you know it was a successful business but put it in the corner and ignore the ignore the pile of paper and after a while we were actually based at london business school in london and in the end we um we basically ran ran out into the corridor and grabbed a passing mba graduate by the collar and said if you come in here and sort out that pile of paper we'll give you some stock <laughs> um, and that certainly instilled in me a very great desire to go and get an mba so i didn't have to do that again you kind of you kind of have these you have these these experiences running businesses, which kind of, Make you alive to the stuff you don't know, and, and so that's the kind of business example from my first startup. The, the technical example is I didn't have a computer science degree. I had a, a lot of i did done a lot of hacking, and I did an engineering degree, a physics and engineering degree here at Cambridge, and I was recruiting people into that business. And I was just aware that they knew stuff that I didn't know. You know, data structures and algorithms type stuff, compiler type stuff, um, digital electronics type stuff, and I was just aware that there was there was clearly a missing chunk of of of, of, uh, of stuff. That I needed and that's why I went back and studied the, did the diploma here that's why I came back and did the conversion course that's what kind of drove me out of my first startup and back into academia
1: I mean this is a great place to work or, or if I want to go and I work so. for or, no it's well it's so I think the name and
0: from we what do I've find, seen is we amazing do stuff right I mean yeah exactly so we, I mean we, and it's the deepest of deep tech and there's not much tech this deep in the UK Exactly. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's, and, and, you know, that, that's not to disparage the fintech. There are people who are building, writing software, you know, running consumer-focused software. But, you know, there aren't many companies doing the super deep stuff here in the UK. Um, but how would I get here? Um, so what, what, what do we hire? They generally do have pretty good academics, but I wouldn't say that we hire, you know, we're not particularly Cambridge snobs. We probably have—I would say—we have as many people from York as we do from Cambridge. There are other universities in the UK compared to Cambridge. And you know, Cambridge produces some amazing graduates. But if you think about that—that that trade-off between practical and, and theoretical skills—there are other trade-off points. And there are for our needs, there are the universities that hit that hit those trade-off points in their in their courses a little better than Cambridge does. So when we're taking people from Cambridge, we're usually taking people who happen to have gone to Cambridge, but who were hobbyist programmers beforehand and who've got their their, um, uh, their hobbyist stamp, their craftsperson stamp some, somewhere else. So we take people with good academics, but not necessarily, doesn't necessarily have to, have to be Oxbridge. We, we only really take people, certainly, in, into the um, hardware and software teams. We sometimes talk about, have you ever written a computer program you didn't have to write? You know, one that you didn't have to do for your course, one you didn't have to do for your uh, employer. Yeah, did you ever build an electronic product or write a computer program you didn't have to write? So people who have demonstrated some kind of personal passion um, for, 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 for this stuff. It's a pretty good discriminator, that, right? You know, that yeah. really does yeah, discriminate definitely. very well. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, you know, one of the challenges is it over-discriminates a little bit, because what you're doing is you're discriminating against people who've had, who've lacked the opportunity to do that. And so, to some extent, what you're seeing with Raspberry Pi it's a closed loop system, right? So it's, it's a we we kind of uh, soup to nuts. Um, you can see we're a foundation which is dedicated to giving every child the opportunity to discover that they like computing and a venue in our hardware platforms and our and our educational resources, um, a venue in which they can work on that, uh, and that then makes it more justifiable. Will in due course make it more justifiable for us to operate this hiring policy which could be seen otherwise as being uh, as uh, as being discriminating in the bad sense not discriminating in the good sense
1: i see it a lot in like other fields as well like technical fields if you're not prepared to put in the in your own effort and do your own thing it's it's like are you really actually do you, is this really what you want to do? Yeah, and I mean what you've got with the Raspberry Pis, I mean obviously it, it doesn't apply to everyone, but for a lot of us we have no excuse because we've got a device that we can hack on or yeah, that's right. play on or yeah. do something with. Yeah.
0: And one of the wonderful things here is we now employ people, small number of people in their twenties who got their start on the Raspberry Pi. That's great. Right, so that's that closed loop system is now starting to establish itself, and we've got more work to do to make it to, to keep it going to make it happen. Um, but we are um, we're on the road now, which is. And anyway, you know, back to the idea that the computer industry, the workforce in the computer industry in 10, 20, 30 years' time is gonna look a lot more like society than it does today. And that's gonna be in part, I hope, because of the work that we've done with the foundation.
1: Eben I really want to thank you, you know, for taking so much time to talk to me. Uh, just for everyone who's watching, uh, we've done a lot today and I really wanna thank you for, you know, taking all this time to share, but also to, you know, encourage millions around the world. change their lives through what you've created but also sharing your knowledge
0: thank you i mean it's it's weird right i've been working on this since 2006 right you know this is a it's getting on for a 20-year endeavor now and the remarkable thing about it is it's uh it's still good fun you know i'm an inveterate before we did this i thought saw myself as an inveterate doer of things for four years i thought that was my my time my time period for working on anything was four years. This is this is coming up to, towards 20 now. So just wonderful to have a chance to chat about it. Thank you very much. It's fantastic.
1: And I mean, I, I just want to say thank you for changing lives through what you've created. I mean, I, I'm from South Africa. You know, these kind of devices give people in places that are perhaps not as privileged the opportunities to change their lives. So thanks so much.
0: Awesome. Thank you.